Hello, you're listening to Search for Truth. I'm John Martin, and in a few moments we'll have another talk from Brian Johnston, our Search for Truth Bible teacher. First, a warm welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Tomorrow's headlines is the title of this Bible prophecy series, and today Brian's called his talk Promises, Promises. We need to remind ourselves that we're not talking about human promises. Many people make promises, from politicians to companies advertising their products, and all with varying degrees of reliability. Brian's talking about God's promises, and that's a unique concept, because God's promises are absolutely reliable and sure. They never fail. Before we listen to Brian, let's enjoy hearing our singers as they remind us how sweet is the promise, I will not forget you. Among the most important things that may be said by married men and women are the words, I do and I will, spoken on their wedding day. Words which make a solemn, binding promise and emphasise marriage as a covenant. In the Bible, there are four major occasions when God says, I will. They're so major, they give shape to world history, to God's programme of events. The stunning thing about them is that all four of them involve Israel. Bible predictions are amazing for the prominent place given over to Israel, one that's out of all proportion to her size. Just as we've previously established the rise of Europe as a major feature of biblical prophecy, we now need to see the Bible wide underpinning for a re-emergent Israel. For it's another key to Bible prophecy that we need to have regard to whole Bible perspectives. On the first of these four times when God said, I will, He was speaking to Abraham. Listen to the number of times he repeats, I will, in the following quote from the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's I will covenant promise to Abraham included that Abraham's name would be great. A great nation would come from him. All the families of the earth would be blessed. The land of Palestine would be given to him and to his seed. The multitude of his seed would be as the dust of the earth. Whoever blessed or cursed him would themselves be blessed or cursed. He would be the father of many nations. Kings would proceed from him, and the covenant would be an everlasting covenant, with the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. It also included the promise that God would be a God to him and to his seed, that his seed would possess the gate of his enemies, and in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That all adds up to quite a list, doesn't it? 
a list that included personal, national and universal blessings. Some things were personal to Abraham, like his name would become great. Some aspects of the promise were national, relating to the nation of Israel which would descend from Abraham, like how theirs was to be the land of Palestine. Other aspects of this great promise were universal, as in every nation becoming blessed through his descendants. Through Abraham, God promised Israel a land and a seed. The plain, unconditional nature of God's I will to Abraham seems to promise Israel permanent existence, as well as the ultimate possession of their land. As far as events in the Middle East are concerned, we're still watching this space. But the various parts of God's promise to Abraham didn't even begin to be fulfilled right away. First of all, there was a delay of 25 years before Abraham's wife Sarah even gave birth to their special son, Isaac. And hundreds of years would roll by before Moses prepared the Israelite people to set foot in their promised land. Perhaps on the brink of that delayed entry and facing hostile occupants, they began to have their own doubts about God's promise to Abraham. But when Moses spoke to them, his tone was reassuring, and his words were God's words. When Moses said, He will, it was the same as God directly saying, I will. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you this day. So Moses spoke those words to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in these clear, resounding terms, God, through Moses, reaffirmed Israel's title deed to the land of promise. In fact, the matter of their possession of the land is emphasised more than ever here. But what's really impressive is how their anticipated disobedience, their repeated disobedience, wouldn't be allowed to derail God's long-term plans for them in the land that he'd promised to them. And yes, God kept his promise when he brought them back from captivity in Babylon. But there's more than that here. There's talk of a future regathering from worldwide dispersion, and there's mention of national conversion. All that before obtaining full possession of the land and its blessings. So for Israel, the best is still to come. There are those who'd query that, of course. It's become fashionable to interpret the promises God made to Israel as not being literal promises for them, but as being fulfilled through Christ's church in some sort of spiritual way today. The evidence against that view, however, is very impressive. As we continue to make our way through God's four main I will promises, we'll see that. The next one we come to was spoken to David, the king of Israel, around 1000 BC. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name. 
I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The major terms of this promise that God made to David in Second Samuel chapter 7, the major terms of it have to do with a house, a kingdom and a throne. Its sure provisions are that David is to have a child, a successor who will build a temple, and the throne of his kingdom will be established forever. It will not be taken away even if he sins. And if one word struck you from that reading a moment ago, I think it ought to have been the word forever. David's house, throne and kingdom were to be established forever. But is this promise really satisfied by the household of faith now? And Christ's heavenly throne, as some suggest, Israel certainly interpreted the kingdom as a future earthly national kingdom. The New Testament makes 59 references to David, but none of them connect with Christ's present reign. God the Father's throne is not the throne of David. And the Bible elsewhere makes clear, clear mention of a future period of Jewish blessing after a period of Gentile blessing. So we come back to the view that these are literal promises for Israel. So finally, we come to the fourth I will promise, recognisable to us, I'm sure, as the new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was the old covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again every man his neighbour and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This new covenant, which is also applied to believers on the Lord Jesus Christ later in the Bible, separately guarantees that Israel will be regathered, converted, and have her sins removed as the basis for the future restoration of all her blessings in her land after Christ's second coming. All we've heard of in these four great I will promises might be summed up as a nation forever, a land forever, a king forever, a throne forever, a kingdom forever, a new covenant and lasting blessings. These seven features give us clear insight into how to interpret Bible prophecy. A golden rule is to follow a literal approach. Bible prophecies are bound up with God's covenants. 
The covenants themselves are prophetic and give an absolute cast-iron guarantee of Israel's future. We can only properly understand these four covenants in a literal way as still relating to Israel in the future. So it should be very clear that the Bible predicts a future for Israel in her own land. There's a verse of another hymn which says that God's unequalled wisdom shines gloriously in his designs, all things working to fulfil counsels of his sovereign will. As Brian said, God's covenants and promises give a cast-iron guarantee of fulfilment. God deserves our trust. If you would like to know more or have a question about today's talk, why not write to Brian? The address is Search for Truth, Box 246, Bolton, England. If you'd like the free booklet that goes with this series of 12 programmes, then ask for the title Tomorrow's Headlines and send it to the same address, Search for Truth, Box 246, Bolton, England. Listeners in Australia should kindly write to Search for Truth, Box 748, Ringwood, Victoria 3134. If you prefer email, the address is sft at churchesofgod.info You can also visit our website www.searchfortruth.net Thanks for the pleasure of your company today. If you can, please join us at the same time next week. Until then, goodbye and may God richly bless you.